Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dagena Dor, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Yu Hang Li about her new book, Becoming Guan Yin, Artistic Devotion of Buddhist Women in Late Imperial China, published by the Columbia University Press in 2020. Dr. Li, welcome to the show. Uh, hello, Dagena. Uh, thank you for having me. Great. Um, it's a wonder, really wonderful um, to have you on our channel to talk about your wonderful book. Um, I wonder if you began the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in East Asian studies and specifically in Buddhism and late imperial China. Uh, yes, sure. Uh, so I was born and um, brought up in Beijing. I was first uh, trained as an art historian and worked as an assistant curator in um, Beijing Art Museum for about five years before coming to the U.S. So I often uh, taught um, people that uh, the seeds of my research interest in women artists and material culture were already there when I learned uh, Chinese traditional painting uh, in high school. So um, because I first uh, studied uh, the freehand uh, style ink painting, my painting teacher frequently praised me by saying that uh, my brush strokes uh, were so forceful that uh, they didn't seem like they came from a female hand. Uh, Although I was not uh, clear about uh, the supposed uh, difference between female and male brush works, I still uh, internalized uh, his words as a standard of um, good painting. And for a long time, I was proud uh, of myself that I didn't uh, draw like a woman. So uh, like uh, after uh, high school, uh, I attended uh, college at the Central Academy of Fine Arts in Beijing and majored in art history. So uh, regardless of whether we were studying Western and our Chinese art history, most of the artists we learned uh, were male. So fortunately, this is not uh, the case anymore. But uh, in the early 1990s, uh, we never really questioned uh, the category of artists and took it uh, for granted that artists uh, were men. But uh, this gendered uh, perception uh, was challenged after I graduated uh, from college and started working at the uh, Beijing Art uh, Museum. So the majority of the collection from this museum are the artifacts from the late uh, Imperial China. Uh, So I was in the uh, collection department. Uh, So there I had um, various experience um, concerning women, art, and religious um, practice. Uh, While uh, I was uh, cataloging uh, collection, uh, I encountered painting, uh, calligraphy, and embroidery created uh, by women, especially uh, while I was 
writing uh, this uh, scholarly and catalog, Mingqing Foxiang, or Buddhist sculptures from Ming and Qing period. So I came across uh, many documents and uh, objects uh, related to lay um, Buddhist women. Also, uh, the museum uh, is located uh, in an imperial Buddhist uh, temple called Wan Shou Si, our temple of 10,000 longevity. So this temple was actually first commissioned um, by Empress Dowager Li, the mother of Wan Li Emperor in late uh, 16th century. And then it was expanded um, by Qianlong Emperor for his mother, Empress Dowager Chongqing's birthday in 18th century. And then finally, uh, this temple was under last major renovation uh, when Empress Dowager Cixi was the actual ruler during the late 19th century and beginning of uh, 20th century. So uh, consequently, I started to realize that although women have not been uh, regarded seriously by the canon of Chinese art history, uh, they played a crucial role in the production of art. So, so in this early stage, uh, my interest in Buddhist art and uh, women's history were very much connected uh, to my experience of learning Chinese painting and later uh, working as a curator in museum. So I often, uh, I, I only started uh, to rationalize a lot of these ideas after I came to the U.S. Um, and studied uh, in graduate school. Um, so maybe I should stop here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, thank you. That was a really interesting kind of um, journey that you have been through. And and you also paint yourself. So that's a really nice kind of um, perspective you can offer in your book as an artist yourself. Um, Well, thank you for sharing that. And um, before we go into questions about the book itself, um, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to write Becoming Guanyin? Uh Yes, yeah. Uh, so Becoming Guanyin uh, is uh, revised uh, from my dissertation. So perhaps I should explain a little bit uh, how I decided to work on a dissertation on the cult of Guanyin and uh, women's material practice. So as I just explained that uh, I already had some awareness of uh, women's role as uh, creators and patrons of artworks before coming to the U.S. After I started um, graduate school uh, in the U.S., um, I learned that as early as uh, 1988, I think, uh, the leading art historian, Marsha Hoffler, already curated the uh, first exhibition dedicated uh, to the woman artist uh, entitled uh, Views from Jade uh, Terrace. And then also from 1990s, many pioneer uh, scholars such as uh, Susan Mann, Dorsey Cole, uh, Francesca Bray, uh, Beata Grant, um, Grace Vaughn have already uh, explored uh, women's uh, agency in uh, controlling their lives uh, through literary uh, creations. So uh, when I was an MA student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, so I took a class uh, with a professor named uh, Geraldine Wood, uh, who works on female convent of St. Clair uh, in early modern Italy. So she uh, discussed how Franciscan nuns uh, from the same convent created uh, devotional objects and space collect- uh, collectively. I think that was my 
another kind of uh, weakening uh, point that religion uh, can be a meaningful way to explore uh, female subjectivity. And then I think uh, in my early years uh, in the PhD program at the University of Chicago, uh, Junfang Yu's um, groundbreaking uh, um, book, uh, Guan Yin, The Chinese Transformation of Avloki Tesfara, was just um, published. Um, so before reading her book, I uh, already had uh, encountered some paintings and embroideries of Guan Yin made uh, by women. So I was very inspired um, by her work and learned uh, the historical trajectory of how Guan Yin became the most influential female deity in China. So her, her book really set up the foundation uh, for my uh, project. However, uh, I was also very interested uh, in the issue of the consequence of the feminization of Guan Yin. So how did gender transformation of a deity impact on worshippers uh, in terms of their own gender identity? So this question was never asked by previous uh, scholars. At that time, um, most uh, scholarship on Guan Yin had primarily focused on textual transformations or iconographic variations in the image of Guan Yin over time. But I want to shift uh, to the focus uh, to the relationships that obtained between worshipped and worshipper in practice. So in particular, I want to turn into the actual objects created and used by women as a direct way to studying a uh, woman's life. So the book on Becoming Guan Yin uh, extends uh, the dissertation's focus on women's creation of the image of Guan Yin. So I do this um, by adding uh, discussions of the mimetic practice uh, by which women use their own bodies to echo that of Guan Yin's so I added uh, two uh, new chapters on dance and jewelry. Um, but um, the central theme is still to discuss uh, the power of uh, material things for women's access uh, to the, uh, the authority of uh, religious experience and uh, specifically to transcendence. Well, thank you. Yeah, um, your book is definitely a really kind of refreshing, refreshing um, take on material objects surrounding the cult of Guanyin, but also kind of like embodiment, right, through dancing and also um, other sort of physical practices that we'll be talking about in, in a few minutes. Um, so thank you. Um, let's go into the book itself. Um, so Guanyin um, is basically... A bodhisattva in Mahayana Buddhism, the bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara, um, originally was a male deity um, and became gradually indigenized as a female deity in China. And later in the Ming and Qing periods, um, um, this, this deity became the most popular. And although Guanyin's gender transformation is, is not really the main concern of your book, since you're focusing more on the social effects of the feminized, right, the already feminized Guanyin, but can you tell us a little bit about the feminization process of Guanyin in China and especially how the deity's sexual transformation has been understood? Uh, yes, yeah, sure. Uh, this is always a fascinating uh, question and issues. Um, so I want to actually... Uh, first, uh, to um, mention that uh, among all the deities uh, in Buddhist panthems, uh, Guan Yin, uh, also known as, as you said, uh, as Avalokiteshvara, the Buddhist of compassion, 
and possess the distinctive uh, secret powers of self-transformations. So like in um, Buddhist doctrinal texts such as uh, the Lotus Sutra, uh, Guan Yin can transform uh, into a wide range of forms from the celestial world uh, to the secular world, from human being to non-human being, and from male to female, uh, from adult uh, to children, and so on. So by transforming himself uh, into roles that encompasses all hierarchical and gender differences, Guan Yin is a universal saver. Uh, so he, he can appear in the form as uh, the worshippers uh, wishes. So, however, uh, you know, on the uh, representational level, uh, so Guan Yin was usually represented as a male deity in India, but uh, was uh, gradually indigenized as a female deity in China during really long time period, uh, a span of nearly a thousand years. So when we say uh, Guan Yin's feminization in China, it also means that uh, some indigenized uh, Guan Yin manifestations were created, such white-robed Guan Yin, Guan Yin of the South uh, Sea, uh, fish basket Guan Yin. Uh, so in which uh, Guan Yin is usually represented as a woman. So when we say uh, Guan Yin um, like, uh, was uh, visualized uh, as a female uh, deity, uh, so that's... This didn't only happen uh, in uh, the art, uh, but Guan Yin also portrayed as a female deity in various narratives, appearing in miraculous uh, dreams and testimonies, and also typified as a female figure on stage. So in late imperial China, uh, Guan Yin is even objectified uh, as a woman with uh, sexual appeal and became a symbol of uh, exceptional beauty. But, uh, you know, I also want uh, to point out that, uh, so there are like various terms uh, such as feminization, gender transformation, uh, sexual transformation, or even sex change have been uh, suggested uh, to categorize uh, Guan Yin's womanly appearance. However, the sexual transformation of Guan Yin is not explicitly a sex change in the sense of modern medical discourse of uh, sex uh, reassignment surgery, but a shift uh, in the gender of Guan Yin, which uh, implies uh, differences uh, in the way that the deity is perceived. So if we look at um, some uh, of the most popular Guan Yin figurines uh, from Ming and Qing period, like uh, the ceramic uh, statues or even some like bronze statues, we all always see a peculiar female divine um, body. So uh, you can clearly see uh, femininity embedded in her facial uh, expression and hairstyles, um, but uh, she has a neutral gendered torso. So I want, uh, I also want to um, point out that, um, so there's a, uh, although we said uh, the Guan Yin became the most uh, popular female deity in late uh, imperial China, but there's a still a gender politics embedded in the representation of Guan Yin in late imperial China. So some uh, male painters uh, continue to depict Guan Yin in masculine guise, um, either to 
revitalize an archaic style or to seek their own religious salvation via Guanyin's uh, male forms. Um, Oh, thank you for clarifying that. Um, it's definitely more of a gender transformation than a mm-hmm. um, a sexual one, or in the biological sense. And in in Buddhist sort of philosophy, um, bodhisattvas are, are also not supposed to have any clear sexual um, kind of identity, right? Yes. Yeah. Thank um, you. I think that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and your book centers on Buddhist lay women, right? Specifically in late imperial China. Um, so who are these women and how did they practice and where did they practice? Uh-huh. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, so um, lay um, Buddhist women. So it, it's actually also, um, it's like when uh, it's actually unstable category. Um, so in terms of uh, class, um, most uh, lay women discussed in my book are, are gentry women, imperial women, and um, courtesans. Um, so I wanted to actually to work on um, women from um, a wide range of social uh, stratus. Uh, however, um, I also um, like uh, confined uh, uh, with in the materials I could um, find. Um, so um, I so the materials uh, I uh, accumulated really uh, just um, enable me to s- study primarily uh, elite uh, women. So uh, with respect to women's social identity, uh, their uh, daughters, uh, daughter-in-law, wife, uh, concubine, lover, uh, widow, uh, mother, mother-in-law, and grandmother. So many of them uh, were uh, recorded as exemplary women um, by local gazetteers. So simultaneously, uh, most of uh, these women were uh, educated women. And so during the Ming and Qing period, uh, women's literacy uh, was highly promoted. Uh, many women attained advanced levels of literary and artistic uh, accomplishment. So uh, with respect to space, uh, so in general, uh, these lay uh, women lived in a space that was uh, confined uh, by Confucian ideology. It means that uh, women practiced uh, female virtues uh, through uh, choice followings, follow the social status of paterfamilias um, using um, Dorsey Coe's translation and also the four virtues uh, like womanly morality, uh, womanly speech, uh, womanly manner, and womanly uh, work. So domestic uh, space uh, was the central site uh, for women to practice uh, the cult of pur- purity, uh, such as filial piety and chaste uh, womanhood. However, uh, as uh, Dorsey Cole explains, uh, the, the choice of followings uh, deprived a woman uh, of their formal and social identity, but not their individuality and subjectivity. So my book uh, discusses how the cult of Guanyin or Buddhism uh, enabled uh, lay women to pursue uh, their goals and interests. So with respect to the uh, question, uh, how did they practice? Uh, I think uh, women uh, used uh, the home as a space uh, to primarily uh, practice uh, pure land uh, moralities, um, 
which involved uh, repetitively calling Buddha's name, chanting Buddhist sutras, uh, worshiping Guan Yin, doing meditation, or and keeping uh, keeping a vegetarian diet. So my uh, research um, shows that uh, material practice are related to uh, Guan Yin, such as making icons of Guan Yin, uh, was also part of this domestic uh, religious um, practice. So um, in, uh, in other words, uh, the religious efficacy was created through women's own hands and bodies. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and another unique approach that this book takes is that it looks at uh, women's things, right? How women made and used religious objects and how religious objects allowed these women to construct and sell fashion social roles, as you argued in the book. Um, in other words, uh, your book highlights gendered material practices. Um, so what has been some of the discoveries that this approach um, has revealed and um, throughout your research process? And also, what are the difficulties um, that encountered of looking at gender material practices? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for this uh, wonderful uh, question. So in the past uh, three uh, decades, um, many scholars uh, have studied uh, Chinese women's history in order to um, grasp women's experience. However, women's identity are always already constructed uh, in ways that are almost inevitably linked to male discourses. So in particular, women's uh, religious lives uh, were either stripped down or selectively included uh, in various uh, writings um, by male authors. Uh, so the approach of women things uh, allows us uh, to reveal uh, lives and practice of women that were not recorded or simplified uh, in text. In this book, um, I have discussed uh, material practice uh, were uh, rarely or never studied uh, before, uh, such as Guanyin dance, hair embroidery, and uh, Guanyin hairpins. Although in China, some uh, scholars on uh, material culture uh, have written a lot on uh, hairpins, uh, Guanyin especially uh, hairpins, uh, but uh, they discuss uh, this uh, hairpins uh, along uh, the history of Chinese um, jewelry. Um, so, so women uh, used uh, and made these objects to directly uh, connect with uh, transcendent uh, deities. Especially, I try to use uh, individual case uh, to review women's uh, relationship uh, with Guan Yin. Also, what I have uh, tried to do is uh, to read the semantic meanings uh, embedded in material objects through thinking about uh, the materials, uh, medium, making process, technique, uh, skills, positions of the objects, and so on. And and, uh, there are a lot of uh, difficulties uh, to do research uh, on material objects uh, related to the cult of Guan Yin. Uh, so there are so many difficulties. So, but uh, I will just uh, use uh, one example to explain it. Um, so, for instance, uh, when I work on hair embroidery, uh, Guan Yin, so first, actually, it's very hard uh, to uh, collect uh, the survived objects. Um, but uh, there are also other issues. For instance, uh, there are 
very limited sources on the practice. So I saw uh, this um, anecdote on a woman using split uh, hairs to stitch icon. Uh, it says uh, that a woman used an extremely sharp uh, blade to split uh, the hair. So it sounds simple, um, but when you try it, uh, it is impossible to split a hair with a knife. <laughs> so I interviewed um, a contemporary male hair embroidery artist, uh, but this artist uh, never heard such a uh, technique. Uh, yet uh, he was very confident and told me, uh, it is impossible to split the hair. <laughs> however, however, the split hair was observed uh, under microscope. Um, so, um, but later um, I, I saw a clip <laughs> made by a Russian. <laughs> uh, so this person first uh, s- stabilized the knife and then put the split hairs through the blade. So in any case, um, you know, we still don't know how... Um, like uh, women uh, in pre-modern China split a hair, but at least this possible um, way to do it. Um, so um, the reason I talked so much about split hair is that uh, the making process uh, was part of uh, devotional uh, practice since uh, time, uh, labor, skill, and technique are all part of uh, devotion. Wow, thank you. Thank you. This is really fascinating. I will definitely talk about um, hair embroidery uh, more in, in in the later part of our um, podcast. It's really a fascinating practice. Um, I'm glad your book really highlights this. And it's really talked about elsewhere, definitely. Um, and another key concept that the book uh, introduces is the idea of devotional mimesis, right? Uh, you kind of briefly mentioned this already. An idea which is also reflected in the title of the book, right? Becoming Guanyin. Um, so can you tell us what you mean by the term devotional mimesis, um, but also becoming Guanyin? Yes, yeah. So again, this um, two concept or two terms are very crucial uh, for my um, argument. Um, so the concept of uh, devotional mimesis uh, helps to explain lay woman's uh, relationship to Guanyin. Uh, this term brings uh, together devotion and mimesis. It suggests that a devotee's physical likeness to a deity can facilitate uh, her transcendence of the finite world. So I try to find the power of imitation, a means of uh, practice that can be observed uh, in many religious uh, traditions facilitate the imitation, assuming some parts of the original. Uh, in the context of the cult of Guanyin, uh, so the new modes of mimetic devotion emerged uh, with the feminization of Guanyin. Only after Guanyin uh, was feminized, uh, female worshippers uh, started to bridge bodily connections uh, with uh, Guanyin. So their imitations are uh, full-scale uh, embodiment, uh, including metaphysical, ethical, and material dimensions. So assuming likeness to a deity uh, changes uh, the nature and relationship of dependency. The ultimate goal of uh, devotional mimesis is still through merit making to reach uh, religious salvation. So in Mahayana context, 
generosity is understood uh, to be one of the uh, excellencies uh, performed uh, by bodhisattvas on their path uh, to Buddhahood. So both um, lay and monastic devotees can achieve uh, this um, path. Unlike um, Buddhism's uh, Euro-devotional practice uh, in which practitioners uh, donate monies uh, to the temple, repetitively chanting sutras uh, to fulfill their worldly wishes, uh, such as having a child or uh, ascending to the um, pure land. So lay women found new ways to use uh, their bodies uh, to express uh, their generosities through various ways of making and using things to gain merit. So by merging the bodies of the worshipped and worshipper, uh, women devotees not only create a semblance of Guan Yin's presence, but thereby becomes uh, the very agent by which to secure their own uh, wishes. Um, becoming Guan Yin um, it, it thinks uh, critically uh, just uh, how women create that bodily uh, connection. So their uh, devotions must be understood in light of uh, the distinction between becoming and being. So becoming Guan Yin uh, was always a process uh, that never accumulated in being Guan Yin. So still, uh, women's determination to approach Guan Yin gave purpose and direction to their lives. Um, I actually had a different uh, title before called Reproducing uh, Guan Yin, but I feel now uh, becoming uh, Guan Yin uh, became a more powerful uh, terms uh, to explain uh, the relationship uh, between the worshiper and uh, worshipped. Uh, so all the four different uh, modes, um, painting, embroidering, mimicking through jewelry and dancing, create uh, Guan Yin's uh, presence by uh, using uh, women's own bodies in uh, different uh, ways. Thank you. Thank you for um, sort of um, highlighting that and pointing out um, the, the process where you which you, you came to um, choose this title right for the book. I really like it uh, more than um, than and then the other one you suggested. Uh, I think this one is a really powerful. It gives you a really powerful image of this perpetual kind of process. Right? Um, and let's go into the chapters of the book. Um, so for the four chapters in the book, following the introduction, explore um, four different modes in which lay women expressed um, emetic devotion to become Guanyin. And in chapter one, um, for example, the mode of dancing is discussed, such as the uh, such as an example of the Guanyin dance, right, performed usually by adorned uh, courtesans, often for audiences made up of male literati uh, elites. Um, so how was the Bodhisattva of Compassion evoked here through dancing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Um, a great question. Um, so in, in, I think uh, first, like in order to understand uh, Guan Yin dance um, performed um, by Kurdistan, what we need first to understand uh, the complex relationship between Kurdistan's and Guan Yin. Um, so Guan Yin's um, manifestations as a courtesan, uh, such as uh, the woman of Yanzhou, or as a beautiful woman, such as uh, fish basket Guan Yin, are subtly implied um, by the water and moon uh, Guan Yin, are all related to how sexual appeal uh, was 
viewed as a skillful teaching device uh, to help the laity uh, reach um, goodness. So when Kirtan culture was booming in late Ming period, in order to legitimize uh, Kirtan's uh, spirituality, male scholars constantly draw a comparison between the Kirtan's and Guanyin. So they refer to Kirtan's as living Guanyin or Huo Guanyin in Chinese. So also, uh, a courtesan's sexual identity uh, was part of um, Buddhist uh, rhetoric that male scholars deployed as a teaching device uh, to demonstrate uh, illusion. So this method uh, was uh, used um, before the Ming period, um, but um, interest in it among um, both uh, lay and monastic uh, writers um, grew during the uh, Wanli period. Um, so while the driving uh, force uh, was uh, the popularization of uh, the uh, Long Yanjing, so Guanyin dance uh, performed uh, in a religious uh, procession or play, usually uh, used costumes, uh, props, and body gestures to draw visual reference uh, to Guanyin iconography. However, when Courtesans um, performed uh, Guanyin dance. So creating physical likeness to Guanyin iconography was not really important. So instead, uh, the dancer um, became Guanyin through dance. Uh, so this is precisely because uh, the complicated relationship between Guanyin and Kurtisan in the late imperial China. So this mode of uh, embodiment um, combines uh, the abstract and the concrete. Uh, the identification with Guanyin is abstract uh, since we are not dealing with likeness, uh, but also because uh, the practitioner herself became the deity uh, through motion. It is as if there were uh, there was no mediations between the deity and the devotees. So in, in the beginning, uh, uh, of my research for this uh, chapter, I always looked for evidence of the signs of uh, Guanyin dance, uh, uh, the signs of uh, Guanyin in Guanyin dance. Uh, but when I read uh, poems that are uh, describing Kurtisan's uh, Guanyin dance, for instance, um, I discussed this poem uh, in my chapter. Chapter, This poem uh, was written by Shi uh, Jian uh, from the early Ming uh, period called watching Guanyin dance. So the, the dancer does, does not uh, evoke any signs of Guanyin until the last two lines. So all the audience uh, in this banquet uh, recognize uh, the dancer of Guanyin dance as uh, the water and the moon Guanyin. In other words, um, Guanyin's manifestation uh, is the instant uh, communal experience of all present. So what is unusual in this poem is that um, a seemingly generic dance uh, leads everyone watching uh, and to and also uh, comprehend a manifestation of Guanyin. I think this precisely because uh, again this complicated relationship between Kurtisan and Guanyin in the um, this time period. Yeah. Thank you. And this chapter is really fascinating because you. Um, you also talk about um, the the gaze of the male audience, right? But as well as 
um, considerable kind of agency that these uh, courtesans performing the Guayan dance had, right? For example, in the case of Xu Jinghong, the courtesan um, who was, I guess, inspired right, by this mimetic devotional practice to later become a Buddhist nun. Um, so it's a really fascinating chapter to read. Um, and chapter two um, turns our attention to the class of the lay gentry woman who engaged uh, with Guanyin through the mode of drawing, um, specifically in the practice of Bai Miao, or the plain drawing style. Uh, what did this practice mean for these women, and why was this drawing mode specific to the gentry women, not other female groups? Yeah, uh, it's, again, it's a very um, uh, important question. So uh, gentry women usually refer uh, to uh, uh, scholar officials' wives and daughters. Uh, so they, they had uh, education. Um, it means that they not only compose um, poems, but also cultivate uh, themselves uh, with other art forms such as painting, calligraphy, embroidery, and music. Um, most of these uh, gentry women were also uh, listed as exemplary women by uh, local gazetteers. Um, so as we um, like discussed earlier, there are different manifestations of Guanyin. Although we talk about Guanyin as a beauty, there are also Guanyin manifest- manifestations uh, stand for filial piety, such as uh, Princess Miao Shan as Chinese uh, indigenous form of Southern hands and Southern eyes on Guanyin. Uh, so also like a white robe Guanyin can stand for purity. So certainly other groups of uh, women, uh, such as Kurtizan, uh, could have uh, had very similar uh, literary and artistic uh, training. So indeed, there are many famous Kurtizan painters who were also um, Buddhist. But um, it's interesting, uh, we only see gentry women are constantly described uh, as the painter of Bai Miao Guanyin our um, plain drawing uh, Guanyin. So uh, in many short um, biographies um, of women painters of Guanyin, they always um, juxtapose uh, their, um, like the author always uh, juxtapose uh, this woman's literary achievement and uh, virtuosity with their drawings of the, uh, the deity. So the, Rhetoric tropes of women painters of Guanyin suggest that uh, during the late Ming and early Qing, the uh, straightforward linear painting style provide a visual vocabulary uh, that pr- uh, produce an icon aligned with expectations about women's purity. So in other words, uh, the plain drawings were not just an aesthetic choice, um, but uh, contained moral judgment and symbolic meanings associated uh, with uh, gentry women's uh, identity. So uh, the um, feminized uh, Guanyin uh, configuration in Bai Miao painting uh, uh, with its absence of added color uh, was seen uh, to mirror uh, female chesty, uh, a virtue that was strongly promoted uh, in late uh, imperial China. But uh, what we do see are uh, the changes uh, in like 18th, 19th century when we move to the Qing period. Um, but uh, my um, 
uh, like this chapter primarily uh, deals with women from the late Ming and early Qing. Thank you. Um, and moving on in chapter three, um, the book discusses the extraordinary practice of hair embroidery, um, the third mode of the mimetic devotion that you look in the book, uh, which involved female practitioners plucking out their own hair and using it to embroider images of Guanyin. Um, in the book, you mentioned that this act can be understood as counterpart to men's writing uh, Buddhist scriptures using their own blood as ink. Uh, so what did this practice of self-mutilation uh, symbolize for these women and how is it different from the masculine practices? Yeah, thank you. Um, so um, the here, uh, yes, in the Chinese uh, context, uh, uh, the uh, the hair must be plucked or put uh, put uh, from its root uh, instead of being cut uh, with uh, scissors, uh, which certainly uh, caused uh, physical pain to the practitioner. Um, but um, the precise uh, process of extracting hairs from the embroiderer's uh, own head is unclear. So whether uh, the hairs uh, was gradually accumulated during the making of the embroidery or put out all at once before the first uh, stitch was made. Uh, it, it's not known. So either way, uh, the plucking hair means that uh, women devotees have to endure uh, substantial pain to accumulate sufficient strength uh, of hairs to uh, embroider an image. So this ritualized experience of pain can be found across time and cultures. So in the Chinese context, I think we must understand this reduction of distance from the divine in relation to the idea of yin or sympathetic response, which implies a compassion for the pain of others. So when a, a given subject uh, inflicts a pain on herself in a religious context, uh, so she tends uh, to transcend her uh, a fine, a finitude uh, and approach uh, the um, Buddha or Guanyin, feeling herself um, a recipient of divine sympathy. So uh, divine sympathy is uh, considered to be universal by believers, uh, but Self-inflicted pain can uh, individuate uh, the practitioner who uh, construct a personal relationship uh, with the divine. So in this case, uh, the um, voluntary suffering of pain uh, by plucking out one's hair is uh, integral uh, to creating the image of Guan Yin. So then with respect uh, to the uh, question, um, how... Uh, it, this type of practice is different uh, from the uh, masculine practice, uh, as you mentioned, how it's different from blood writing uh, scripture, which we all know that uh, it's also suffer uh, a lot of pains. So I, I think uh, this kind of bodily sacrifice, like blood writing uh, scripture and um, hair embroidery, uh, was actually closely associated uh, with a person's uh, acquired skill and that uh, skill itself, uh, whether writing or embroidery, was deeply bound up in the social construction of uh, gender. Although um, by the Ming and Qing period, uh, 
many uh, women could read and write, uh, which means they could uh, use brush uh, uh, to transcribe um, a, a scripture or use, even offer their own blood uh, to uh, transcribe a blood writing scripture. But they still uh, prefer uh, this so-called needle and, uh, and thread, in this case, needle and hairs. So uh, because needle, thread, or hairs is still part of this womanly uh, work, um, not only because womanly learned from young age, um, but also womanly work implies uh, this moral activity linked to a gendered uh, identity. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's, it's very fascinating to read this chapter specifically. Um, and the fourth chapter of the book um, explores the fourth mode of mimetic devotion, um, which is jewelry adornment, right? specifically hairpins. Here you suggest that devotional hair adornments, right? I'm quoting, uh, devotional hair adornments became a vehicle by which they could insert their interests between the cracks of state regulations around dress and ornaments. Unquote. Uh, it seems that these women were exercising considerable agency right, through these gorgeous uh, decorative objects that they inserted in their hair. Uh, can you tell us uh, a little bit more about how these hairpins facilitated devotional practices? Uh, yes, yeah. So um, in the uh, hairpin uh, chapter, uh, we uh, actually deal with a different type of uh, devotional practice. So women uh, wore hairpins similar to Guanyin as a way to evoke uh, Guanyin's um, presence. Uh, and also, most of these uh, hairpins uh, have been excavated from tombs, indicate that women's body was seen as a key uh, to securing uh, their uh, rebirth. And jewelry, uh, especially women's uh, hair accessories, um, gradually and became a, a new luxury burial items that uh, bore symbols, uh, religious figures, and narrative scenes that uh, represented uh, the afterlife. Uh, so uh, first I want to uh, clarify that um, there are actually uh, a wide range of subjects on women's uh, jewelries. So although both men and women uh, kept long hairs in pre-modern China, uh, a woman's head <laughs> became uh, where she could uh, express her view of uh, cosmology by adopting different hairstyles and using special access accessories. Um, so um, by wearing hairpins, um, so a, a cape type of wig uh, that uh, contained a religious figure or symbols, women could uh, deliver a message. Uh, so, so Buddhist or Guanyin hairpins is only like a part of this uh, larger uh, categories of um, religious um, hairpins. So in this book, um, I have discussed like a different type of um, devotion. Uh, women's uh, devotion uh, is um, measured in terms of uh, material value and uh, the physical labor uh, invested, uh, and especially the amount of effort uh, taken to transform their treasured personal belongings into religious items. So here I, I see um, both a woman's expensive uh, hair accessories and their, uh, their own body as part of uh, devotion. So properly present their body for transcendence. 
is part of this um, uh, devotion. Uh, the transcendence here is uh, realized uh, through mimetic uh, devotion. And, and the significance of the body in the cult of Guan Yin is evoked directly uh, in the female bodies of the deity. So in other words, mimicking Guan Yin's appearance um, by wearing a hairpins similar to Guan Yin's uh, signifies uh, this uh, internal transformation that uh, took place inside of a woman's um, body. Thank you. Um, and, and that transformation is sort of intended um, not just for this lifetime, but also beyond, right, in the afterlife, um, as you mentioned in this chapter. Um, and in the conclusion chapter, you point out that the material practices of women's religious lives in late imperial China was not limited to the domestic spheres. Um, I think in the book, you um, emphasize that um, by domestic spheres, um, you include not just sort of the at the home, right, but also places of residence uh, for the courtesans as well as for the concubines. Um, so, how have these women's things and objects of mimetic devotion circulated beyond these places, beyond the uh, boudoir? So, uh, it's actually a, a quite uh, complicated uh, issues, and it uh, varies uh, from individual to. Uh, individual. Um, so there are like different venues that uh, women's uh, devotional objects uh, were circulated uh, outside of um, boudoirs. Um, although uh, in Becoming Guan Yin uh, in this book, I primarily concentrate on painting, hair embroidery, hairpins, and dance, but there are also a wide range of devotional objects made um, by women, especially textiles used in the temple, such as outer curtain, banner, uh, prayer mat, uh, table cover, uh, outer table uh, cover, and so on. So uh, with uh, respect uh, to the materials I discuss in this book, uh, sometimes uh, women directly uh, offer their works uh, to the uh, temple, or uh, like uh, other women, like for instance, uh, in this uh, uh, painter and also um, famous poet, Nirin Ji's uh, case. So after she uh, passed away, her family um, dedicated her hair embroidery to the temple where she was buried. So uh, her her uh, icons, her her own artworks actually accompany uh, her, like uh, the burial site. So outside of the uh, temple uh, collections, um, women's uh, painting and embroidery were also a form of <coughs> a cultural capital. Uh, they represent uh, local pride uh, and uh, were sometimes even presented uh, to the court. So uh, the specific about the artist and medium uh, were usually confirmed in the gift uh, transaction in the uh, for instance, the Qing uh, court um, documents, especially uh, during uh, this 18th century uh, and also early uh, the Qing period, women's representation of Guan Yin uh, were actually considered uh, precious uh, presence. Um, but also, uh, I want to uh, also add on that um, during, especially during the Qing period, uh, there are also professional women painters uh, such as 
uh, Jinling, I, I discussed uh, briefly in my painting uh, chapter. Um, but um, as a professional uh, painter, so at this point, uh, actually, I'm, I'm not very clear whether she actually sold uh, her Guanyin paintings. Um, so there's a clear record that uh, she sold uh, her other type of uh, uh, paintings. Um, she might actually uh, uh, have had kept uh, the paintings, uh, Guanyin paintings for herself. Yeah. Thank you. Um, definitely, as I think your book really opened up a lot of um, questions and possibilities, right, for um, sort of future explorations on, on women's uh, things, right, and also material objects, material practices um, in in um, not just uh, the the Buddhist kind of practice um, in imperial China, but also other religious realms as well. Um, and before we end our uh, podcast interview today, uh, we have one more question for you, and this is sort of our traditional question. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about um, your current projects and some of the things that you're working on now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. I, um, I'm working on several um, like a short um, papers, um, but also I have also started to work on my uh, second uh, book um, project. Um, so for my uh, second um, book uh, project, uh, I uh, will still concentrate on the study of a uh, woman and material practice uh, in late imperial uh, China. Um, but um, I uh, like uh, kind of shift uh, the scale and time period from the first um, book's attention to the uh, material practice surrounding the cult of Guanyin by women from different social uh, stratas um, during the Ming and Qing uh, dynasties uh, to uh, look more uh, closely at the uh, critical connections um, between religious uh, agency and uh, the problem of modern sovereignty. Uh, so you probably already guess whom I will <laughs> continue to work on um, uh, Empress Daozhen Cixi. So, uh, so, so I will concentrate on, on this one woman uh, ruler, um, and then uh, especially uh, to kind of uh, study uh, her like a birthday uh, celebrations uh, from her fifties uh, to her seventies um, birthday. So we know, like for people who are familiar with uh, Chinese uh, modern uh, history, uh, Cixi's uh, like uh, birthday uh, celebration is always measured um, by the laws of either land or uh, tributary regions during uh, Western and Japanese invasion from uh, late 19th to early 20th century. So um, generally, um, her birthday celebration was viewed as a negative negative emblem of the alienation between ruler and root. Um, so, um, in, in this book project, uh, I try to focus on Cixi's manipulation of theatrical performance on and off stage uh, in ways that prefigure this double identities of a secular matriarch and a female uh, deity. So um, I will investigate uh, the different aspects of Cixi's uh, 
very uh, sophisticated um, programming of using theatrical performance of material practice of religion across uh, the stage, at court, and in everyday life uh, to perform uh, like a durable like a uh, durable claim of uh, modern uh, sovereignty. Um, so uh, next year I will um, be in um, Beijing um, Palace uh, Museum and then um, conduct uh, my research on, on Cixi's involvement in stage uh, production uh, in the late uh, period. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, you, your book also, this uh, Becoming Guanyin book, um, also kind of briefly mentioned Cixi here and there, and also um, the way she really loved or to adorn herself, to photograph herself, to get her portraitures painted. Um, in the likeness of Guanyin, right? Um, so I'm really excited about this second book project. Uh, I'm sure our listeners as well. And when it comes out, I'll definitely add it to my read li- uh, reading list. Um, well, thank you so much. I think we've taken up um, enough time <laughs> um, from your schedule. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us uh, in these crazy times. And I had a wonderful time reading your book and, and the best of luck to your uh, future projects. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for uh, inviting me uh, to be on your um, boat, uh, podcast. Uh, it's a great honor uh, to talk to you. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Well, until next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.